0: I'm glad to be here with you, celebrating the new year. Pastor Roger, you threw me off with the "Happy New Year" because then I responded, "Good morning," just out of habit. So, Happy New Year, everybody! It's great to be here with you. Um, stay open to Matthew chapter 26, but if you would, um, I want you also to be ready to to go to another place. And this is something abnormal. We don't normally do this. Um, But uh, we have some transitional verses right here in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to make sure that we understand what Matthew's talking about. But what I love about this particular passage is that Matthew and John have almost the same meaning, gospel to gospel, as far as writers, which is actually kind of unusual because the Gospel of John is so unique. And so we're going to flip over to John because John gives us a little more detail into what's going on here. So I want to do that. Um, so get ready for that. I uh, don't want to throw you off, though. This is a, this is a, a message from Matthew 26, 1 through 5, uh, but we're going to get a little more detail uh, from John chapter 11 this morning. I have a question for you this morning. I want you to think about it. Um, don't answer right away, all right? And uh, not everybody at once, but uh, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Think about that. We've been celebrating Jesus' coming for the last five weeks, and and here we are back in Matthew. We finished up the Olivet Discourse, and we are transitioning back to Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples. And what is this kind of transition? It's one that brings up Jesus' death. But why did he die? Okay, in this passage that Emily just read for us, on the one hand, why is Jesus going to die? Well, well, number one, uh, we hear that he has upset the religious leaders one too many times. He said the wrong thing. And so they determine that he must die. For their religious plans... For the people of Israel, Jesus must die in their mind. He must die because they need him out of the way, right? But Matthew doesn't want us to be confused. So before he would speak those words, that we understand that there was a plot against Jesus and it developed right at this time, right before the Passover, Matthew gives us this theological answer. Why did Jesus die? For the fourth time... Matthew records Jesus telling his disciples, I am going to be delivered over to my enemies and I will be executed by crucifixion. I mean, he gives great detail that this was his his purpose. This is why he came. So you've got really two answers to that question. Why? Why? Why must Jesus die? Well, the religious leaders, Jesus is too much trouble. He's too much of a risk. We can't ensure the possibilities of the outcomes with Jesus, continue to live. But Jesus says that he must die. This is his plan. This is his plan. It must happen. In this passage, we see irony. Irony. What kind of irony? The religious leaders determine Okay, so the religious leaders on their own, not through Bible study, not through reading the scriptures, you know, Isaiah talking about the suffering servant, none of that, right? They just determined that Jesus is too dangerous, he must die. But what do we see? A bigger irony than even Matthew or John use, but that God uses in his redemptive story, that he sends a savior for the purpose of being a sacrifice, giving his life on the cross, That Jesus isn't going to die just because he lost the religious leaders. They committed to his demise. No, Jesus is going to give up his life. Jesus' death, um, you know, was not uh, the, ultimately wasn't because of the religious leaders, but because Jesus foreknew, he foretold his death, and he willingly chooses his cross. You know, on one hand, we talk about Jesus' death as something that happened to him, but truly and theologically, Jesus' death was something that he willingly embraced and chose. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And it's ironic, right? In, in irony, um, we love irony because some character does something or says something, and they don't really understand what they're doing or saying, right? You know, they think that they're going to be able to defeat Jesus with his death, And they don't realize that's his exact purpose. That's why he came. That he will have not fulfilled his mission if he doesn't die on the cross. It's irony. So here's what I want us to do. John and Matthew pick up on this irony that it's the religious leaders trying to crush Jesus' kingdom that they send him to the cross when that is exactly the kind of kingdom that Jesus is establishing. One where he is going to give his life for his people For his bride, so here's what I love about John, and we're gonna flip over to John 11. John gives us some detail as to what this, what happened in this conversation, and what said among the religious leaders, and who in particular, Caiaphas, the high priest. I actually want to point out, I'm, I'm calling them three episodes of irony. Three episodes of irony that we see in this situation as the religious leaders determine, they determine that Jesus will die when we know that it's been God's plan all along. You see, the religious leaders, and we find this out in John, that they are frustrated, anxious, and in survival mode as they make this determination. But their decision highlights the eternal, redemptive plan of God. So on the one hand, you have God's affectionate heart to call broken people like me, sinners like me, to himself, to embrace them, to bring them close to him. And and yet we see this plan being carried out, ironically, (laughs) the self-preservation and the fear of man, that Jesus must die. He can't live any longer. And so this is the first episode of irony that we see fear Fear. So in John chapter 11, verses 45 to 48, they are afraid, the religious leaders. Why? For two reasons. Jesus has made claims that he is the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. He's made those claims. John records it, especially uh, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus makes a clear statement. God's name in the Old Testament, who does he reveal himself to as Moses? When Moses says, who do I say is, is uh, you know, telling me to go, to go let the people of Israel go from Pharaoh? And God says, I am. Jesus knows exactly what he's saying when he says before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. He's saying, I'm God. Jesus is making astounding claims that's a problem. But even worse than that, Jesus' miracles are a problem. In the Gospel of John, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, is what John records. Matthew records the Olivet Discourse. They're up on the Mount of Olives right before this conversation happens with the religious leaders. But why are Jesus' miracles a problem? Aren't those the Aren't Jesus' miracles the things that everybody loves, no matter if they're a Christian or not, no matter if they like Jesus or not, that he can do amazing things and restore incredible stuff about our life? No. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he proved himself to be a greater and greater risk to the religious establishment. He became more and more of a stench. Why? Because with every miracle in growing degree that Jesus performed meant that his claims were more and more irrefutable. I mean, how do you argue with somebody who says they're the son of God? How do you convince them that they're not the son of God when they just brought someone back to life? Things you've never seen before. Jesus is becoming irrefutable through his miracles, and the people are believing. And, and you and I know uh, what you become when you try to argue with someone about something that's irrefutable. I do it a lot, actually. Just ask my wife, right? I've defended prideful attitudes to Jesus, and I've been wrong every time. And you know what I've looked like? What everybody else looks like when they try to argue against what's irrefutable. You look like an idiot. Right? And you, you look stupid. And the religious leaders feel that. We're becoming a laughing stock because of Jesus. Because they've pitted themselves against him. Now this brings up a topic of belief. This is just a little side note. But think about this. Belief. The religious leaders have seen, experienced, and heard everything that you and I are in Matthew and in John's gospel. And yet we understand that belief is more than just knowledge. John points out that there's a division. Belief is a big idea, a big theological theme for John. And he points out there there were some who believed and there were others who did not. There was a, a division. And the division was, what do you think, what do you believe about Jesus? And here's my point. If Jesus comes with the clarity of being in the flesh, with the clarity of Jesus proclaiming his kingdom, and some people believed and some people did not, then you and I should take a hint about evangelism and living on mission. That being faithful to loving people and displaying Jesus is not something we evaluate based on if they believed or not if they decided or not to follow Jesus. That you and I are called to share about Jesus, to boldly represent him, but we don't evaluate ourselves based on what did they decide. I think there are three things for us to focus on that Jesus does and and when we are sharing Jesus and representing him. Clarity, that we're clear about who he is and why he came. His message of grace, that we're clear about that. Because it can be misconstrued in, misconstrued in so many different ways. But that we're clear about Jesus' miracles. We're not just about making people's lives easier or the warm and fuzzies. You know, Jesus mourned the loss of his friend Lazarus before he raised him back from the dead. Jesus dealt with loss and grief he didn't do these things to make life easier primarily jesus did these miracles to demonstrate who he is and you and i need that kind of clarity as we speak about jesus that he came to give grace he came to forgive that he calls us to follow him he doesn't call us to just do nothing clarity but consistency and here's what i mean uh by consistency that the same message that we proclaim is the one that we're also living out uh, a message of grace that Gabe is a sinner he needs forgiveness i'm not proclaiming a message of grace to my friends and then acting like i've reached perfection no i'm living and thriving in fellowship with god and in community with other people and i need to ask for forgiveness and my heart needs to change. in repentance and turning to Jesus' life-giving grace is a daily thing that gave experiences. Right? Consistency. The message that we proclaim is the message that we live out. Right? Consistency. Sometimes we share this message of grace and then, and then they think, because you're different, you know, you must be perfect. And, and that's not true at all. And so we have to be clear and consistent, but also compassionate. That Jesus saw people as sheep without a shepherd, in Matthew's words. That he cared for them. That he was willing to be humiliated that they might understand who he is and have life with him, life to the fullest. Clarity, consistency, and compassion. Compassion. I, uh, as I think about, hey, not judging, like how are we doing it faithfully talking about Jesus? uh, It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, how many people are following Jesus because they had a gospel conversation with you in the last year. I think of one guy in particular, uh, Paul. I met with Paul, he wasn't a Christian, uh, for 15 weeks, and it was great um, because Paul was very open. We opened up the Bible each week for fifteen weeks, I mean, met intentionally, and uh, when we looked at Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and so we had Bible study, and then also like any question that we wanted to talk about, that I wanted to ask him, and he wanted to ask me, it was completely okay. It was great gospel conversation. Some of the richest. Gospel conversations. In fact, I saw so many light bulbs go on in Paul's mind over those 15 weeks, I thought, he must be a Christian. And yet at the end of the 15 weeks, you know, Paul, Paul wasn't. And admittedly, he knew exactly where he stood with God. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I understand the Christian message. I mean, way better than ever, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Wow, what a loss. 15 weeks, hour and a half, two hours sometimes, each time. What a waste. No, that's not how I look at it. I look at what an awesome opportunity. Someone being willing to open up to read scripture for themselves, to walk with them through it, no matter what Paul decided. And that consistency, it's not over. I still know Paul. We don't get together like we used to. His wife and daughter just came to our Christmas Eve service two weeks ago. I still get to be a part of his life, right? I want you to think about who God has put in your life that you're called to represent him. It doesn't matter how they respond. Focus on the right things. How can I be a clear, consistent, and compassionate witness for the gospel of Jesus? All right, so that's a side note, right? Big deal in John's gospel, belief. Even though the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these religious leaders, they disagreed on a lot. They agreed on one thing. Jesus has to die. Too much of a risk. Why was he dangerous? Well, if you look in verse 48, we see a few reasons. They think everyone is going to believe him. He is so persuasive, this Jesus. Secondly, the Romans are going to be upset. The Romans, oh my goodness. Yes, the Romans are still here throughout Jesus' entire life, from his birth, throughout all of his ministry, and the religious leaders are afraid that the Romans are going to come down on them because of who Jesus is, the kind of leader he is. They're not going to like. The Romans are oppressors. They're not going to like Jesus. But lastly, and maybe biggest of all, if the Romans are upset, then we as religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, we're going to lose our place, our position, and our nation, our people. So the Romans occupy Israel during this time. And uh, what, what do they mean by they're going to lose their place? Well, well, think about the greatest place for these religious leaders. Where do they lead out of? Where is their authority, their influence? It's all centralized in Jerusalem, and even more than that, in the temple. And they've seen their temple destroyed before. And, and they, know, they know what the Romans are going to do. If they think the Israelites are rebelling, gaining traction, throwing off some of their oppression, they are going to burn down the temple. That's what, that's what, the, that's what the Babylonians did. They came in. And they burned down a few important buildings, the temple and the king's palace. Those are very important. you got to take those away if you're going to squelch a rebellion. Well, we don't want Jesus creating an uprising because we'll lose our temple. They're afraid. And the nation, what do they mean by this? They mean that we're going to lose our people, Israel. And they don't want to lose the influence that they have what little influence they have. You have to understand the religious system at the time. This is so weird. Um, I I don't even want to illustrate it because I think it would freak us out. But this is the kind of manipulation that the Romans had. Did you know that the Roman governors, so whoever Caesar put over Jerusalem and over these regions in Israel, they would pick the high priest. They would pick who would serve in these different positions these pagan god-worshipping Romans were picking who would be the spiritual leadership in the temple among the people of Israel? That's what I'm saying. It was awful and terrible. And so how were these high priests and and these other priests judged and and given these positions? Well, Well, how well could they keep Roman peace among the Israelites? Yeah, you can worship your God, but you also have to kiss the hand of Caesar. Caiaphas, who's the current high priest, was the high priest for 38 years. He did a good job walking this tightrope, not doing anything to upset Caesar. But here's the irony what are they afraid of? Losing this temple, losing our people. And what happened in AD 70? But the temple was destroyed. What they're afraid of losing because of Jesus, they eventually lost. But here's the greater consequence. The religious leaders were unable to see the Son of God with the power of God because they imagined how this truth would turn their world upside down. It just, it couldn't be true because if it were true, then everything would change. And I can't believe something like that. It was too much. It was going to turn their world upside down. And so because of their fear, they miss Jesus. They miss him. You know, it's the same for us as disciples when we're like, oh, man, you know, Jesus couldn't be asking me to do that. You know, we, we when... Uh, <laughs> We read about different things in Scripture, and, and what we know is the clear will of God. Not, not what your pastor thinks the will of God is for you, but, but what Scripture says. You know what I mean by that? So when we're called to things like unceasing prayer, it's like, really? Like, oh, my goodness. Like, I'm not sure I want to take prayer that seriously. You know, or, or something like fasting. Like, can I really do that? When Jesus calls us to holiness, when he calls us to discipline our children with his love, using those opportunities for gospel conversations to display grace, we don't get to fall back onto as long as my kids are doing what I want them to do and behaving but that we actually look for those opportunities where we can display the gospel. All those things that Jesus calls us to. As a parent, I'll just confess, like I, I just wish you know my little kids wouldn't embarrass me in front of people, right? But the truth is, I might have an opportunity, maybe even on a Sunday morning, maybe even while I'm preaching, where there's an opportunity where I get to display the gospel to my kids when they're misbehaving. And then as a dad, I need to embrace that instead of thinking about, oh, how embarrassing and how afraid I would be of what other people think about me when my kids act up in front of others. Jesus calls us to bold things, but sometimes we can't even think about obeying them because it's just like, oh, wow, that'd be so humiliating or, I'm, I'm so afraid or I feel so insecure. But you and I thrive not because of the promise that God is going to maintain the status quo or he's going to keep me out of a certain level of humiliation. or No. I thrive on the words of Jesus that they are sufficient for me. That what he says ought to be believed and followed. Jesus' words are sufficient for me to give me life. They ought to be followed They're not something I can reject, no matter how much authority I think I have over my life or anybody else's. The religious leaders thought they had a lot. They could disagree with Jesus, but they couldn't. They didn't realize the authority they were up against. But here's a second application out of their fear. What do we see driving the religious leaders in their fear? It's a self-preservation. They have not decided to kill Jesus because it will be good for the people but because it will preserve their influence among the people i mean influence is a big deal today right but jesus shows us a different a different kind of influence instead of just doing what's popular or saying what's popular jesus is willing to lay down his life for his people it's a sacrificial servant leadership, and we see it ironically contrasted with the religious leaders. Okay, so that's the, first, that's the first irony right there, the fear that they had. What they were afraid of actually happened. The way they exhibited an anti-gospel was so interestingly contrasted with Jesus, and they had no idea. But the second is this, revelation Here's the second irony in this situation that John tells us a little more than Matthew. We actually hear of a prophecy that comes out of Caiaphas' mouth. And what are his words? That it is better that one man die than the entire nation. Perish. Those are Caiaphas' words. Now Caiaphas, this is amazing. This is a true revelation from God. This is a real prophecy that comes out of Caiaphas' mouth. But Caiaphas understands this revelation as what? Jesus needs to be our scapegoat so we don't suffer the wrath of the Romans. That's how he interprets this prophecy that comes out of his own mouth. The the whole nation might die if if we don't get rid of Jesus. He needs to be our scapegoat. When what was God saying? (laughs) That this is the Lamb of God who will remove my wrath for your sins. That's who he is. This is not a savior from the wrath of the Romans. This is the savior from the wrath of God. Sent because of God's own love for his people. No scapegoat. This is the lamb of God. Do you see the irony in this prophecy and how Caiaphas interprets it? That Jesus must die to get out of the way when the truth is that Jesus must die in order to be the way to God the Father. Jesus was killed in part because the the council was on a mad search for political solutions and they did not care about God spiritually renewing his people. Hmm. You see the irony in that? We have to kill Jesus to get him out of the way when Jesus is saying, I must die to bring life. Now, what's really interesting is we talk about this nation right here. And for the nation, how does Caiaphas understand the nation? It's the Jewish people. But how John is talking about the nation, we understand that this nation is a growing people, that Jesus is not just dying for Israel, but he's, he's dying for people from all ethnicities and all nations, which reminds us what John says in chapter one, verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We looked at that three weeks ago. The right to become children of God, it doesn't matter what family you've come from, believing in Jesus makes you belong. You are a child of God. You are brought in so, so the irony is we're trying to preserve the status quo in the nation of Israel. And that's what Caiaphas is focused on. And Jesus has a much bigger picture of I am creating a family from all different nations and peoples. And there's shadows of that in, in, in Ruth and Rahab and a number of different people in the Old Testament. But we see Jesus doing this on a huge scale. I'm going to make people that have no business calling on the name of Yahweh, I'm going to make them children of God. You know what that means for us? That Jesus comes bringing grace to, to people that come from all kinds of places and have done terrible things like you and me. No matter where you've come from and no thing you've done, Jesus has come bringing grace to you. The Jewish Messiah calls to you wherever you are. He didn't come to preserve their nation. Caiaphas got it wrong. He he didn't come to preserve the religious leaders. Jesus came to create a new people. To bring many different kinds of people into the family of God. Do you know what sharing the good news about Jesus is like? It's like this. It's like a child of God telling a world of orphans where they can find family and belonging. You know what that means? Our gospel message comes with an invitation that should be given warmly. That I want you to be a part of the family. That I invite you to be a part of the family. That I want you to follow Jesus with me. That's the kind of compassion that our gospel calls for. Well, here's the third episode. It's not just the fear and the revelation, but there's also irony in the preparation. Preparation for the Passover. In verses 54 to 57, we see two contrasted preparations for the Passover. Everyone's preparing for the the Passover meal. and, And people would actually come to Jerusalem weeks in advance to celebrate the Passover meal. This Passover meal, it echoes all the way back to Egypt when God rescued his people right, and they, they put the blood on the doorposts of the lamb, and they ate the lamb, and they ate ready to be rescued with their clothes on, their staff, bags packed. They didn't they didn't leave any of the meal. They ate it all, and they celebrated the Passover every year, and they come to Jerusalem, and they didn't want to be unclean, you know, because if they'd hung out with some Gentiles on the way, or something happened in their journey to Jerusalem. They'd be unclean for the very worship service they were coming to Jerusalem for. So they would come weeks before. And they're all preparing ceremonially. Right? And so the religious leaders, both in Matthew and in John, highlight, "Uh, we can't kill Jesus during the Passover. It will have to be after. because there are too many people there and they've got to remain ceremonially clean and so they decide to wait now there's irony in this there's irony in this here's why the religious leaders are purifying themselves on the outside while on the inside have already committed murder this is what this is what um one commentator says that the people were concerned about purifying themselves prior to the Passover time when their leaders had forever stained themselves as they ruthlessly plotted the death of the blameless Son of God. What a contrast in the outside appearances and the heart of true worship of God. Here's what we find in, in true religion. that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. And that's what the religious leaders missed, right? They continued on in in what was worship, in celebrating the Passover. And yet, who did they miss? The very Passover lamb. You see, while they were trying to stay ceremonially clean, Jesus, at just the right time, on the Passover, as it approaches prepares to be the very Passover lamb that they've needed all along. Some of you, as you and I walk with Jesus together and individually, we're going to face obstacles and and, and sin problems that you and I will need to overcome. And there are are some anti-gospel thoughts that we will have. And we need to recognize them. Because we'll look for pragmatic answers. And, and they sound good, but they're wrong. They're horrible. They're deadly. And here's what they sound like. In our sin, if we just say, if I just carry the burden of this particular problem, it, it'll work out. Or if I just do better next time, then maybe I can have forgiveness for this time. Or if I carry my shame long enough then this sin will eventually be be covered or buried. And none of those are true. None of those are true. Jesus came to give us forgiveness and perseverance in the faith. That you and I can say no to those nasty anti-gospel messages that we feel would be much better than confessing our sin and repenting and turning to the perfect Passover lamb. The the one who truly, even though the religious leaders looked like they were worshiping God through the Passover, that Jesus was truly serving his Father's plan at the Passover. That you and I need to preach the same message of grace to ourselves and to our brothers and sisters. Right here, uh, we see the anti-gospel message pitted against the true message of grace that Jesus is willing to give himself as the sufficient sacrifice. What I want to share with you is this. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? It's a great question to ask. The truth is, there are a lot of details and and reasons and motivations in the religious leaders. But the major, big picture truth is this. That this was God's plan before creation. That Jesus would come as the sufficient Savior. That he would step into the same broken world of of, of AD 33 that he walked in in this passage, that, that he would live and die in that broken world that you and I live in in 2022. But that we would live with God, that we would thrive based on this, that like we can have true religion and true affection for God, because Jesus has covered our sin, because He brings us into a true relationship that we don't have to fake, that we don't have to try to preserve, but that He gives us to be received by faith. See the contrast? You see the irony here? I do, but you know where else I see this irony? The same motivations and the same strategies in the religious leaders, I see in my own heart. I'm afraid of following Jesus will turn my world upside down. Something will change that I, I don't want to. Do you ever have that feeling? <laughs> I, uh, I sense the same thing. I want to interpret things the way that I want to. It's like Caiaphas in this prophecy. What would be best for me? That's how I want to interpret it. And yet there is one place of rest, and it is this. It is trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. He knows best. I don't. That his word is enough. And what he does for me is enough that he is my Passover lamb. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would help us right now as we wrestle in our own hearts. God, where we have heart issues, just like the religious leaders, would you call them out today, right now? Lord, that you and I would be able to walk in fellowship, not based on, on our goodness, but, but based on the life that Jesus gives. God, thank you so much for, for helping us, that that I don't, I don't get to walk through the storyline as one of the religious leaders. You've been especially gracious to me and my friends here that you have pulled back the curtain when you inspired John and Matthew to write that we got to see your intention and your plan. Even while people in Jesus' day watched, watched your son hanging on the cross and thought he lost Our religious leaders were too influential, too powerful. But that we know that that's not true. You accomplished your plan through such means. God, I pray that you would help us to adore you and worship you as the Savior who accomplished his plan, who is willing to be the Passover lamb for us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.